Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Hope you guys have been having a great holiday. Mine has been awesome. Despite the downturn in the market, you know, we made it. This is it. This is the last episode of the year. So uh, it's good to, to look back and, and look forward and see what we can uh, do to improve next year. And uh, today I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the macroeconomic outlook that we have right now, uh, which obviously had huge implications uh, for the stock market it did in December, and it will continue to as we move forward. going to talk about the drama surrounding DBVT and then pulling their BLA application from the FDA. And we're going to wrap up today talking about the companies involved with CRISPR and Cas9 and how they are pretty much at the whims of academia uh, from this standpoint and everything that academia releases regarding the tech surrounding CRISPR. So going to talk about that, do a quick portfolio wrap up for the year. And, uh, and see how the, the downturns affected me, which is not good. And uh, kudos to everybody who pulled out all their money before uh, the Jerome Powell FOMC meeting, which obviously uh, led to a big decline in the stock market. So I'm going to pull that up right now. So we can see here, this is the SPX. We had like five red days coming into the FOMC meeting. And I think given this, uh, investors really thought that Jerome Powell is going to come out there, who's the Fed chairman, and uh, and have a huge dovish outlook. Going to talk about tightening, or sorry, not tightening, but uh, relaxing on the rate increases, and also perhaps slowing down on the balance sheet unwinding. So, uh, what what that means, and I have the chart right here, is uh, the whole economy has been on a very cheap uh, credit cycle right now. So the the Fed had very low interest rates for a very long time, and they also pumped a substantial amount of money into the economy, which made it very easy for everybody to buy up equities, buy up bonds, buy up everything. And uh, Jerome Powell got into the Fed chairman position and changed all of that. So since, you know, uh, Trump got into office and appointed him, he's been increasing the interest rates slowly and has also uh, accelerated the unwind of the Fed balance sheet. So this tightening cycle has led to sort of a clampdown on uh, on money that's available for people to buy whatever, including equities. So what Powell talked about is uh, raising the interest rates 25 basis points, and he indicated two more rate hikes in 2019, which is a difference from the September meeting where they said that they would do three rate hikes in 2019. So it was dovish, but it wasn't that much more dovish than uh, than the September uh, meeting. So people really thought that they might say, you know, no more hikes in 2019 until we see how the economy goes. Uh, they also talked about not uh, changing the unwind of the balance sheet. So, uh, you know, as part of a stimulus, the quantitative easing that went on in the last 10 years, the, the Fed has finally decided to to reverse that and go into quantitative tightening. And they started at a very low rate per month, and that's been steadily increasing. And in October, it uh, went to $50 billion per month. So we can see here, the this is the Fed balance sheet, and it's it went from like $800 million to $4.5 trillion. And now uh, in 2017, they, they started rolling that back by, you know, $10 billion a month. And we can finally see that the, the unwind is, is kind of happening, even though it's, a, it's still a huge balance sheet, which includes things other than 
U.S. Treasuries. So uh, this pressure here is going to lead to more volatility in the market. People think that uh, because capital is so much more expensive to get, that uh, it's going to be harder for growth to occur. So the stock market's having a, a response to this. However, on, on a global whole, uh, you know, unemployment is still very low and wages are rising. So the, the, Fed's, the Federal Reserve's mandate is actually to, to look out for unemployment and to maintain prices. So when it comes to inflation, they want to keep inflation in check and they also want to keep unemployment low, which is what they're doing. And so that's why Fed, uh, Powell is looking at this and saying that they're not going to be any more dovish than they need to be. And they're not going to be, uh, you know, bullied around by Trump or bullied by declines in the stock market. So I think all of that combined is what really got investors scared. And what led to this, uh, you know, three extra day decline where Christmas Eve, we closed at like 2350. And we've seen a couple days of bounce. And, uh, you know, who knows where it goes from now. But uh, yeah, so other things, you know, the trade wars that continue to go on the tariffs that, that Trump's put up and that China continues to have, this is also putting pressure. Uh, it hasn't had a huge effect but it has uh, led to some worry about, about the economy in the future. Housing's also kind of slowed down, which is a bit of a leading indicator in the, the macro sense. So people see people are buying less houses and uh, the prices are starting to decline slightly and, uh, and that's starting to get noticed. So this is all kind of stuff that uh, I'm trying to keep an eye on more to see whether or not investors are going to feel more comfortable buying more high volatile stocks like uh, biotech. So uh, there's there's concerns out there. And, you know, I, I encourage everybody to read, uh, you know, the books by Ray Dalio, which makes it a lot easier to understand the debt cycle and uh, and why we, we go through these different um, cycles of, of low, uh, of very cheap credit and then very expensive credit. And it leads to more productivity, but uh, we can't get that unless we offer credit and then tighten afterwards. So I also encourage everybody to watch or listen to the Macro Voices podcast. They do a great job of breaking down uh, a lot of very important um, macro issues. So I've learned a lot from them. Uh, yeah, so I'm not going to get into this chart, but basically there's, there's short-term debt cycles and long-term debt cycles. And uh, the having those allows us to be more productive than if we didn't. Because if we can't take out credit, then we can't uh, increase our productivity more than just what we have today. So what you're doing when you're getting credit is you're borrowing from your future self, and you have to pay that back eventually. And there's concern that where we are right now in the economy is the part where we have to pay that back. And that's obviously leads to a lot less growth, even though our productivity uh, continues to go up. So that's all I'm going to say on that. So uh, it looks like 2019 is going to be very volatile. If employment remains low, uh, that should be good. If wages continue to increase, that will also be good, and uh, we might be able to push off a recession. The stock market bounce back that we saw here is uh, is good to see, but this could just be a dead cat bounce before we see a lot uh, more significant crash, although the concerns that we had in, in 2008 aren't quite uh, here. The, the similar ones that we had in 2008 aren't quite the same, so uh, I'm less concerned than, than I would be if we were in that area. But... Looking at the XBI, I had this line up, and uh, we obviously broke through it when 
just soon after I, I was talking about it and we touched down all the way to 65 just under so we're starting to see an uptrend again but you know with the high volatility that we have this could break any day but you can use this as kind of a guide the uh, points that I'm looking at are around 72 and a quarter as a, as a next really good resistance before we might see a little bit of a pullback but again these are just kind of guidelines and technical analysis has its own drawbacks so uh, that's kind of the macro uh, things I wanted to talk about, and let's get into more biotech specifics. So, a couple weeks ago, DBVT announced that they were pulling their biologics license application for their peanut allergy via skin product uh, because of concerns from the FDA regarding QC and manufacturing. So, I haven't touched on these companies in a while, but I do have a substantial position in Amune, and both of these companies are interested in helping with allergies. Uh, severe anaphylactic allergies. DBVT has a, a subcutaneous product that sensitizes patients to um, some whatever allergens. They have a peanut product or a peanut uh, allergy product. That's the one that I'm talking about here. They have a milk one, and um, I think they're doing other things. But Amune also has a, an oral uh, desensitization therapy. So they just have a regimen where you take increasing doses of peanut pro protein and that lowers your sensitivity to uh, an allergic response that you would have. So uh, they're both competitors, and they both finished phase three trials. Um, Amune had very positive response uh, in their phase three trial. DVVT also did, except they were unable to get a good uh, effect. So the confidence interval that they saw was not in line with what they expected, and uh, this made the this was a, a an outline from the FDA, but they also then allowed DBVT to submit a biologics license application. So, you know, there's some controversy on whether or not they would expect approval, but I think if the FDA is going to invite them to submit a BLA, that they would be uh, approved, um, given that. So, assuming that they have all the all the concerns figured out, but apparently they don't. So, you know. You would have expected that in a meeting with the FDA, they would explicitly go through the QC and manufacturing procedures that uh, would be allowed. And I don't know if it's a, you know, language barrier. DBVT is a French company, so I don't know if how, how this is all going down. But basically, there's some issues with the way they're manufacturing uh, their product, or they're doing QC on their product, and they need to fix that before the FDA will uh, approve a BLA. So. I didn't listen to the call, but uh, apparently they didn't give DBVT didn't give any specific timeline, and this obviously led to some concerns because if it's due to the technology itself, they might have to really rework their system to produce the Viaskin uh, subcutaneous cartridge in order to meet compliance with the FDA. So, if it's a significant manufacturing thing that they have a problem with, it could really set back the company. Otherwise, if it's just related to the way they're producing the peanut or something like that, uh, this could be very quickly wrapped up. So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty here, and it could be an opportunity. I, I'm personally not going to play it, but, you know, if we look, I have the market caps down here. Amine's at $1.5 right now, and DBVT's at, at $250 million. So if you think that there's a chance they, uh, they don't have a significant manufacturing issue here, uh, you know, it's worth... It's worth putting a little bit of money on it and seeing uh, seeing where it goes because they sold off tremendously, from fourteen fifty all the way down to to three ninety three seventy, 
And uh, since then, it's bounced back and been stable around six. But this is a huge sell-off, and it might be anticipating more, uh, you know, more problems than there will be. So there's a bit of an opportunity there, I think. But I'm personally not going to be involved. Uh, they're also presenting at the J.P. Morgan Health Conference in J- at January 7th to the 10th. So there might be more info that comes out about this problem then. And there's also a catalyst in February of next year related to their milk product. But again, it's still their whole company is based on this Viaskin subcutaneous uh, cartridge. So if it's a big manufacturing problem, everything is going to be affected in their portfolio. Related to Amun, uh, so obviously this leaves Amun a lot of room. And if, uh, you know, having a first uh, mover advantage is obviously very helpful. So Amun did uh, increase in share price after this news came out. And, uh, you know, if we look at their corporate presentation, I thought I'd just give like a quick overview of my rationale for why I think they're they're worth more. So they they have a lot of sources here for how much the prevalence of peanut allergy in the world. And uh, so they're forecasting in 2020 that 6.4 million people are going to have uh, this condition and might be interested in uh, a treatment that would lower their sensitivity. They're only going to have the indication for the 4 to 17-year-old kids. So, you know, for 2020, they submitted the BLA, so they would have approval at the end of 2019. So if we just use this as a metric, there's about 2.9 million kids that have this. And if we assume, oops, if we assume uh, 5000 bucks a year for the product, and I make, this is all assumptions, this is just opinion, you know, the the fun part about investing is really you, you have a lot of leeway in, in making assumptions, and that's where there's real opportunity. So 5K a year might be more than a lot of people are willing to pay, and we don't know how interested formularies are going to be in covering it. So, you know, likely not, but uh, if we assume 5000 bucks a year, 30, 30% market penetration, that's about $4.32 billion in revenue. Now, with a market cap of 1.5 billion, you know you got to think is three times revenue an appropriate price for Amun today. I personally think that 30% market penetration is is an understatement. I think that uh, parents of allergic kids are going to look at this and and get a, a real relief knowing that there's a product out there that they can have their kids on and and they're not going to need to worry about them eating something and going into anaphylactic shock. So I really think that this is going to be uh, like parents of peanut allergic kids are going to jump at the opportunity of this. So based on that, it's hard to know how the pricing is going to be involved. But I uh, I do think that they're going to get a lot more interest than than some than the market is anticipating today. Other than that, they have a few catalysts coming up. There's another phase three regarding their peanut allergy product in uh, due in the first half of 2019. They're starting their egg trial and their walnut trial in 2019. So these are phase twos, and they don't take a super long time. Uh, actually, I'd have to double check and see if the, the regimen is any different. But, you know, if they get a readout in 2020, it's not uh, it's not too far away to see uh, how they could generate more revenue streams from this. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. We'll see if we get any more insight into uh, pricing and uh, and go from there. But let's move on. So the last thing I want to touch on today is the companies involved with CRISPR-Cas9. And uh, from the outset, and some people have have suggested this to me, 
you know, don't invest in these companies that have all these IP concerns because it's such a binary event. If a judge just rules that Editas is the one that owns the IP, the other ones are just going to crumble and you can't really predict any of this. And, uh, and I agree with that in general, but it seems right now that all of these companies are at the whim of academia because there's been so many articles coming out saying that crisp release can lead to so many deleterious effects that uh, it just keeps hammering the stocks. So uh, these techniques have been used a lot in research to date. And, uh, you know, my lab used them a bunch. And I know other labs across the world, there's tons of commercialized products uh, for research only that use these. But then we saw earlier in the year that uh, the first CRISPR baby was apparently born. And uh, they modified him to have the, the child to have HIV immunity. So I'm super skeptical of this. I, I just don't believe really anything that China says these days. So uh, I don't know, I'm taking this with a huge grain of salt. But I mean, it's possible that they did this. And, uh, and if so, you know, congratulations. But who knows what kind of long-term effects this, uh, this kid will have, if any, and maybe they won't. But I think uh, uh, the things that we've been seeing here, so Nature Medicine in the summer published a couple articles that talked about the car carcinogenicity of the technique. Uh, there were all other papers that talked about huge chromosomal aberrations that happened with this technique. And then uh, lately, a couple weeks ago, there were these papers that came out talking about how most humans have uh, adapted immunity to the Cas9 that uh, is most commonly used in CRISPR, uh, which means that it would never work in, in those patients if the, the host immunity just targets it for degradation. So, and you know, these are all technology, every single technology had to go through growing pains related to this. And we know that, you know, there's, there's specific intricacies related to the CRISPR Cas9 that make it uh, maybe uniquely uh, interesting to certain researchers. So, uh, and the reason for that is that it's gene editing, right? And when you start messing with the genome, a lot of bad things can happen. So just to outline some of the papers, you know, uh, so, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing induces P53 mediated DNA damage response. P53 is a tumor suppressor. So this, you know, could lead to some sort of tumorigenic thing. Uh, double-strand breaks, complex rearrangements, published in Nature Biotechnology in July. And the latest one is uh, T-cells are reactive to the strep uh, pyogen genes Cas9 in the adult human population. So uh, tons of peer-reviewed research coming out saying that, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 in humans might be a bad idea. And, you know, it's it's all something that these companies are going to have to to work around, and I'm sure they will. If you think about even the T cell reactivity thing, you know, there's a lot of different Cas9s. They don't have to use the strep pyogenes one if uh, if they're concerned about T cell uh, reactivity. And you know, if if there is no Cas9 that uh, can do this, then maybe there's a problem. But just showing that one Cas9 can't be used by uh, in humans isn't necessarily going to kill the technology, but uh, this is all, this stuff is going to continue to come out in 2019 as the technology advances and these stocks will continue to get hammered. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to invest in any of them. I think investing in the companies that might use the technology today is a better idea and especially those technologies that uh, use it ex vivo. So any company that's looking to do in vivo 
but it's like giving the CRISPR Cas9 to a human, I think is super uh, risky right now. But you know, targeting the cells in ex vivo and then checking them to see if they have any of these things, carcinogenicity or chromosomal aberrations, I think is a fine product. Um, and the the CRISPR Cas9 companies themselves are, are absolutely beholden to the IP rulings that end up coming out. So I don't think they're a great bet either. But I thought I would touch on this because uh, of all the crazy papers we've seen. And I, it's it's been a long time since I've seen so many papers come out from like different angles that, that hammer a technology. So, uh, you know, we'll see how, how it pans out. But that's, uh, that's my personal opinion. All right, last thing I want to talk about today is the my portfolio. So unfortunately, we're wrapping up the year at around minus 9%. Uh, the XBI is coming in at minus 15 or 17.4, and the S&P 500 is coming in at negative uh, 7, I believe. So not great, especially since at the beginning of the year, I was up after the Madrigal data, and uh, all the Nash company has been hammered, but I've been adding a lot to my Viking portfolio. And uh, really nothing else. I have been adding some XBI uh, equity in, in one of my accounts. So I haven't added this here, but I'm going to probably incorporate it in 2019. But uh, I figure instead of you know adding small amount of shares in each one of these as the downturn occurs, I'm just buying some XBI stock. Uh, that way I get exposure to the whole sector during this, this downturn. And it could last a while, but I'm prepared to hold through all this. So yeah, and uh, given that, the expected volatility is still going to be very high in both the XBI and the SPX. So everybody continue to be uh, cautious moving forward and don't put all your money in at any one bet if you want the lowest amount of uh, risk. So yeah, so with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching. Really appreciate it. And please like, subscribe, leave me a comment. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in 2019.